Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Children of the Night. Next week will be our 200th episode, so we'll be backburnering what had been our summer trip south as we creep into autumn for our 200th episode. The material that we have gathered specifically to commemorate our 200th is going to be more than a single episode, so it may be more than a week or two before we'll finally get to Savannah, Georgia. That town being where I've rather arbitrarily picked to terminate our sojourn, I've only been there once for a single afternoon, and Savannah treated me just fine. However, we've left the Tar Heel State for South Carolina, and we'll dip our toe in this state before pausing for our 200th, and we'll continue on our way. We've got two monstrosities in South Carolina. On November 12, 1949, on the campus of the University of South Carolina, a strange man dressed in bright silver was spotted opening up a sewer covering at the corner of Sumter and Green, immediately opposite of the Long Street Theater, at about quarter to eleven at night. One of the two male college students who spotted the sewer-dwelling disco pioneer happened to write for the school paper and diligently reported on the incident. Nothing came of it. Six months later, a police officer discovered mutilated chicken parts scattered about behind this Long Street theater. He returns to his patrol car to report the scene, and then returns the alleyway. And lo and behold, hunched over the chicken carcasses is the same man, dressed all in silver. However, this time, in the light of the policeman's flashlight, in the center of the silver man's forehead, is the third eye. Retreating to his car again, this time to call for backup. When that backup arrives, the third eye man is missing. Twenty years later also holds a story in which some fraternity brothers from the college head into the underground tunnels of the school, 
where they come upon a decrepit man, dressed all in silver, who assaults him with a length of pipe. After reporting the minor injuries to the police, a search of the tunnels for the third-eye man is underway. Nothing is found. The most recent reporting and sighting of third-eye man was in the 1990s, but I hope that the students of the University of South Carolina still check under their beds before going to sleep at night. The second monster from South Carolina is the swamp creature of Bishopville, or the lizard man of scape or swamp, if you prefer. Two in the morning, on June 29, 1988, 17-year-old Christopher Davis stops to change a blown-out tire on the edge of the scape or swamp. When finishing the job, he hears a sound behind him, turns and sees the glowing red eyes of a seven-foot-tall creature running towards him. Fleeing to his car, the lizard man begins tearing at that car, and clung to the vehicle as Chris drove away. At home, the side mirror had been smashed and the roof of the car had been scratched. Chris's father took him to report the story to the Lee County Sheriff's due to a car having been mauled not too far away only six weeks earlier, in which similar damage had been reported. On the month following Chris's ordeal, the area heard several more reports of sightings and strange scratches, bites, and other damage to cars sw near the swamps around Bishopville. The summer's interest in the cryptozoid peaked when the local radio station WCOS offered a $1 million reward for the live capture of the lizard man. After that, interest tapered off. However, just this year, a woman named Sarah published a picture of the lizard man. Although I took a look, and it looked like someone had spent some money at Akira Watanabe's rummage sale and was out for a stroll. Regardless, if you find yourself near Bishopville, South Carolina, make sure you get the extra insurance on your rental car, the one that covers swamp creature bites. Let's get on to our stories, Children of the Night. First up, we'll have a bit of Christmas early from a story from Stuart Horn. Stuart lives in Scotland, about a hundred yards from the sea, but spends a lot of time in Glasgow, whose darkness and character strongly influences his work. His day job is guitarist. The story you're about to hear is Christmas with Julia, which originally appeared in 2011's Astronomicon's Christmas edition. Stuart has also appeared in the horror zine and its anthology, A Feast of Frights. And let's not forget that he's been on the receiving end of a few awards for poetry. And now Stuart Horn's Christmas with Julia. Michael had worked in the bookshop for eight years, but couldn't remember a busier Christmas Eve than this one. The opening hours displayed in the window indicated a closing time of 6pm, but they had been shooing customers out an hour after that. Even as Michael finally emerged into the gently falling snow, a man accosted him. You shut! Sorry mate, we shut an hour ago. The man looked past Michael at the people still being served. Come on, he said. What about them? Believe it or not, Michael said. They've been in the queue since before six. I think Waterstones might still be open. He brushed past the man and said, Merry Christmas. Michael took his phone out of his pocket and composed a text as he walked. Finished, finally. Nipping to pub. Home one hour. MX. The reply came within seconds. K. Hart. J. X. Off Sucky Hall Street, the crowds were thinner, and when he turned into Bath Lane it was almost deserted. He bustled through the door of Todd's. The barman nodded a greeting as he entered, and Michael nodded back as he crossed the small space from door to bar. Late tonight, said the barman as he poured Michael's usual pint. Busy day, Michael replied. Still got time? Yes, always. 
The barman smiled and passed the pint over. I won't make it the next couple of days, Michael continued. Family stuff, you know? He took a long swallow of beer and sighed his appreciation. Close tomorrow anyway, said the barman. Pretend I'm a Christian for a day. Michael laughed lightly and took another big swig. Even Satan's minions get a day off at Christmas. I should bloody think so, said the barman. I've been a good little minion this year. I wonder what I'll get. Probably what you deserve. Hope not. Michael took the rest of his pint to a seat by the window and looked out. There was a view of the brick wall of the next building just a few feet away, some wheelie bins and steaming pipework. A few people hurried past, but he wasn't really watching. He thought about Julia, waiting at home, and about everything that had happened in the last few weeks, and he smiled, feeling a familiar swell of emotion. Love, lust, fear, guilt, a little disgust, a touch of self-pity. He wanted to be with her now, but there was something he had to do first, even though the thought of it terrified him, and he knew he might well vomit afterwards. He took out his phone and checked the message inbox. 24th of the 12th, 1910, Julia, K, Hart, J, X. 24th of the 12th, 1707, Julia, Awake, Miss You, J, X. 24th of the 12th, 0757, Julia, Night, Hart, J, X. 24th of the 12th, 0705, Julia, Coffee, J, X. 24th of the 12th, 0044, Julia, Night, X. An overweight woman lumbered past outside with several carrier bags. One bag clearly contained a massive turkey. She's feeding a big family, he thought. He made a snorting noise that was almost a laugh. He was shaking. He took a deep breath, gulped the last of his beer, and stood up. He put his empty glass on the bar as he passed and went through a door marked Toilets. Ignore the two toilet doors and open the third one marked Private, closing it behind him and stopping to let his eyes accustomed to the gloom. The sounds of the city disappeared and a sweet smell began to seep into his nostrils. He recognised it and prepared himself, but the brutal images that filled his mind a moment later shocked him, as they always did. In previous visits he tried postponing the next bit, but he knew the effect would only get stronger the longer he delayed. So as soon as he could see well enough, he walked into the darkness. He reached a rack of steel shells stacked with assorted pub paraphernalia, and squeezed himself around behind them to another door, which he pushed open and walked through, down a flight of concrete stairs and into a dimly lit cellar room. The smell was now overpowering, the images in his mind coalescing into horrible specifics. Hello, Michael, said a deep voice from the shadows. Hello, croaked Michael. There was a pause. In Michael's mind, a horde of armoured men were being scattered and strewn over a forest clearing, bodies breaking and leaking red into the soil. He could hear shouts of panic and clashing swords, feel the fear and confusion. The scene was abruptly replaced by a giant vision of Julia's face, and for a moment it was almost enough to make him happy. The striking red hair, those unique eyes, shining with love. Then a question was thrust into his gut, and the illusion of happiness burst. She's fine, he said. Happy. For now, said the voice. She will kill you, one day. You know that. Maybe. In Michael's vision, his own shadow stole over a bleeding, gasping young soldier. Michael shared the rush of pleasure that someone 
had felt at the terror and agony in the boy's face, and the next part of the vision engulfed him entirely. Only when the echoes of the soldiers' screams had faded did the voice continue, and the cellar room come back into focus. Give her my best, said the voice. More silence. She is family, after all. Will do. Michael felt the nausea rise. The salty, metallic taste of the soldier's blood was still in his mouth, the shit stench of ripped intestine in his nostrils. His hands felt sticky. A patch of darkness in one corner seemed to grow larger and darker and rushed towards Michael, spreading like an engulfing wave, and for a moment he saw the scene again, this time from the dying soldier's point of view. He shut his eyes tight, even though he knew it wouldn't make any difference. He managed to suppress the scream, but his heart beat fast, his bowels churned and he felt tears tickle his cheeks. But when the vision finally receded and he felt brave enough to open his eyes, there was a steel thermos flask at his feet. He stooped and picked it up, breathing heavily. Thank you, he whispered. It was nothing, said the voice. Come by any time. A new scene was starting in his mind, this one unmistakably in modern times. A young woman at a tenement window, searching the dark street for something. You should go now, said the voice. Michael tried to shake the vision out of his head as he fumbled his way back up the stairs and into the pub. The barman nodded sympathetically as Michael passed and almost ran out into the alley. Outside, Michael leaned against the wall, breathing the fresh, freezing air and letting big snowflakes fall on his face like the cleansing kisses of angels. Then his phone buzzed in his pocket. 24th of the 12th, 2005. Julia. You on your way? Hungry? Smiley face. Michael smiled and typed. On way to bus stop. Got a takeaway. M. X. The voice, the smell, the images had not fully faded from his mind as he emerged from the alley and turned onto Sucky Hall Street. And for a moment Michael saw the crowds as he saw them. Weak, bloated sacks of comestible flesh. He cradled the flask in his arms and made his way to the bus stop. A time of plenty, he thought. A time for family. Merry Christmas. That was Stuart Horne's Christmas with Julia, as read by Richie Smith. Richie Smith was born in 1980, and it's been pretty much all downhill from there. He currently lives in Old Trafford with a death metal musician and a salamander. You can go and say hello to him on Twitter if you want because he's a thoroughly modern sort of chap in that way, at Schiff. Link in the show notes, of course. He's putting his master's degree to good use as a roadie for a heavy metal band in Slovenia. Our second and longer story for the night comes from Mark Rigney. We have heard from Mark only a few weeks ago with his story, The Demon Laplace. Notice I'm using the better pronunciation instead of Laplace. Anyhow, in case you missed it a couple of weeks ago, a bit about Mark Rigney. Mark is a writer and a stay-at-home father living and working in Evansville, Indiana. He has two sons, currently ages 8 and 12, respectively, and he is happily married to a wonderful woman with whom he shares a house, the boys, and far more meals than any married couple has a right to expect. 
Most writers learn to specialize, and thus we have journalists, novelists, short story writers, nonfiction writers, screenwriters, and playwrights. Mark apparently missed the class suggesting these helpful divisions, and so, rather alarmingly, he now embraces his own proclivity to work in whatever genre, style, or medium suggests itself. Let the idea dictate the form. That's his motto, which means he isn't very good at what the business world has come to call branding. Instead, Mark continues to try his hand at everything from meta-theatrical craziness to poetry, blogs, and epistolary rumination. Back in the exciting halcyon days, when he held real jobs, Mark worked as a zookeeper, a sound recordist, and as the theatrical director for a college theater. For several years, he made his living as a retail trainer for Border Books and Music, where he assisted with store openings across the country, reasoning that while endless chain stores may be undesirable, no nation can ever have too many bookshops. In his spare time, he has been known to hike, teach college-level English, and creative writing classes, and play with his children. Mark has a lengthy list of publications and writing projects, all of which you can find on his website, markrigney.net which will be linked to in the show notes. And now, Mark Rigney's surrogate. Her name was Molly, and his was James. James and Molly Severn, pregnant. That's how they like to announce it. We're pregnant, and they smiled when they said it. They glowed. So what if their choice of phrasing made others uncomfortable? They were happy, expectant, and their happiness ran in circles around them, bulletproof safe. They were private people, accustomed to each other, easy to like but hard to know, and they had just moved to the plowed under prairie town of Fogel, Illinois. They kept a neat brick home, a small yard and two little gardens, one for flowers, one for vegetables. Molly was pregnant when they moved in, and she started right away on the nursery. She painted from top to bottom, adding scarlet tulips and creamy daffodils, and a sky-blue ceiling complete with puffy white clouds. The delivery, however, labor was long and painful, and it ended with an emergency C-section, difficult and panicky. They did, however, get Abby, a beautiful baby girl, healthy and strong, with a wispy mop of dark hair and eyes like lamps, her mother in miniature. The codeine the doctors gave Molly was supposed to still the pain, but her incision festered. James became the full-time caregiver to her as well as to Abby, ministering Tylenol three to the one and Enfamil and diapers to the other. Molly was far easier to care for. Even in the early going, Abby cried hard and never slept long. James became nearly as fatigued as Molly, he was crotchety, forgetful, myopic. When Abby struggled during a diaper change, he found himself viewing it as willful, a battle, and he reacted with hurried, forceful movements that made Abby squeal as he over-tightened the flaps. He began to crave one thing and one thing alone, sleep. Night and day slipped together, merging like two clear liquids. With the shades pulled to help Molly and Abby sleep, time ceased to have either definition or function, except to suggest when Molly's painkillers might wear off. James recorded these as best he could on a homemade chart, but he forgot some entries and miswrote others. Abby had charts too, 
mandated by the hospital, with columns for stools, urination, and feedings. James, more zombie than man, tried to keep up, and failed. The doctors eventually gave Abby an official diagnosis. Colic. As if, muttered James, giving it a name makes it all right. The name certainly didn't come with a cure. Nothing could calm Abby. Not James, not Molly, not formula, not nursing. And her face, red and blotchy from the effort, from the tears, she shook like a leaf and gave off a nose-crinkling scent, somehow weak and pathetic and mealy, the stink of desperation. James, who had never intended to become anyone's primary caregiver, and certainly not Molly's, took a leave of absence from work. He scurried almost daily to the pharmacy, yet he soon lost count of the endless follow-up trips to the hospital. Invariably, James and Molly left the hospital with a fresh, untried prescription and the mutual grief of their mounting medical bills. At home, Molly fought back with wry, dark jokes, telling James, "'Don't worry, hun. When we get to old age, we'll be experts.' But James found it impossible to laugh. New parents, of course, hear sound differently, so even when Abby quieted, it seemed to James that he could hear her still, mingled with the hum of the furnace, the hiss of air in the vents. It was as if her crying had somehow gotten into the walls. At night, walking with Abby was the best solution they'd been able to muster, but the old oak floors creaked and complained, protesting every step. Just when James, walking Abby, needed silence most, he'd put his weight on the wrong board, and she'd snap back to life, hollering to wake the dead. Stairs, however, had a soothing effect, so down James would go, cradling Abby in the crook of his arm, down and then up again, softly humming a string of wordless lullabies. The stair-walking typically took at least fifteen minutes, and when it worked he could slip Abby back into her crib and tiptoe away, picking each step so as not to hit the worst of the floorboards and ruin Abby's sacred rest. James's mind had begun to wander a host of strange, crooked roads. As Abby let out her sharp, mewling cries, he imagined he saw things, moving things, shadows mostly, on nights when there wasn't any wind. Amber light from the city streetlights always beamed along the floor, but now James could see them separating and spreading, moving outward, tickling the floor. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Or in new and formerly vacant corners. Worst of all, there were nights when he could have sworn that the rocking chair was moving, just slightly, a small tilt back, a gentle nudge down. Colic, the doctors kept saying. Colic, just two syllables, compressed and clicking. James couldn't help thinking the word ought to be bigger. He began to fantasize about getting rid of Abby. He imagined dropping her at the orphanage in Quincy, wrapped snug in a basket like a terrestrial Moses. Or he could sell her to some kindly slaver. They would have to be kindly, or he wouldn't do it. Perhaps you could interview them first, establish a rapport, extract some guarantees that they'd raise her right, pay for braces, send her to college. He imagined the ad he'd place. Healthy Caucasian baby, female, loves to cry. He did love his little girl, he truly did. But couldn't someone else take her just for a moment so he could catch up, rest, get a grip on his nerves? It was two weeks to Christmas, a Friday, a night with terrific winds. The old storm windows banked like cracking ice in their frames. Abby was on her third walk, and James, tired as he was, had already crashed twice into the walls, gently toppling sideways like a dancing bear. And then, as he passed by the family room, he spotted a bent woman in a colorless robe, hunched beneath a shawl in the old rocking chair. Her steel-gray hair hung in ragged sheets down her shoulders, clinging to her narrow head like fallen cobwebs. James stopped, certain that at any second he'd see her for what she had to be, a hallucination. But then the old woman gripped the arms of the chair with her long, knuckled fingers and pushed herself to her feet. Eyes gleaming, she shuffled across the floor, her faded bathroom slippers scuffling on the floorboards. She said nothing, but she held out her arms, beckoning, to James, for Abby. James took two steps backward, then turned and fled up the staircase. He reached the top, dashed into Abby's room, and slammed the door shut behind him. Abby screamed, but James focused past her, on his breath coming in flurried spurts on what he'd seen downstairs. But what had he seen? An intruder? A burglar? He'd call the police, get it sorted out. But the telephones were out of reach. 
one in the master bedroom, one downstairs, and he wasn't going down, and he couldn't break in on Molly just in case by some miracle the slamming door hadn't woken her. So he stood there, perched like a statue in the middle of the floor, and when dawn came he was there still, collapsed on the floor and leaning against the bureau, with Abby tossing fitfully in his arms. He did not tell Molly. He didn't know himself what he'd seen, and there was certainly not a shred of evidence. The rocking chair in daylight looked entirely normal, especially with Molly sitting in it, suckling Abby. With coffee and scrambled eggs to settle his nerves, he concluded he'd been the victim of a mirage brought on by exhaustion. The next night, Abby woke just after one, and James staggered when he lifted her out of her crib. He nearly plunged down the stairs when he rounded the corkscrew landing. On his second turn through the kitchen, he wobbled into the refrigerator and knocked off the magnets holding Abby's photos. They clattered against the linoleum and were followed by a fluttering rain of pictures. Abby arched her back and tried her best to throw herself out of his arms. He'd meant to avoid the living room, but the commotion in the kitchen flustered him, and next thing he knew, there he was, confronted once again by the woman in the rocker. She half rose from her seat and beckoned with one arm. Come closer, come closer. Let me hold the girl, just for a while. James stared into the apparition's face and found no malice, no anger. Indeed, she gave him the smallest encouraging nod, and before he fully grasped what he was doing, he leaned down and handed Abby over. Abby mewed once and let out a single wet, choking cough, but then she subsided. With James standing over her, watching, the ghost woman gently rocked first back, then forward, and Abby nuzzled against her, not searching for a nipple, just settling, like a cat in a sunbeam. In less than a minute she was asleep. James could not believe that Abby had fallen asleep so easily or so suddenly. He had a dozen questions at the ready, but the woman freed one hand and raised a single cautioning finger to her lips, an insistent and unspoken, Hush! Baffled, very suspicious, James sat down across from the crone. He perched on the lip of the couch, ready to leap to Abby's defense at a moment's notice, but there was no need. The woman rocked for another few minutes and then inclined her head, indicating to James that he should come and take his baby back. James rose and the woman in the rocker handed Abby up to him. For a moment their fingers met. It was like touching dust or plaster, something powdery, desert dry. He carried Abby upstairs and laid her in her crib. When she woke again two hours later, he took her straight to the living room. The ghost woman was waiting, resting her chin on her hand, and Abby, as before, fell sound asleep in the woman's arms. Over the ensuing days it became a ritual. Abby would wake, James would get her, and today they'd proceed to the living room. James chided himself for not taking the time to settle Abby himself, 
but he was gaining hours of sleep every night, feeling better by the day, and he just couldn't help himself. The crone in the rocker was too convenient to ignore. Nor did he find the words to tell Molly. Some confessions, even in the best marriages, come hard, or not at all, and each postponement made the topic all the more impossible. Then came the night where, as James took up his station on the couch, the ghost woman leaned forward and shook her head. Strands of hair flew over her face. She pointed one lank finger at James, then slowly closed her eyes. James shook his head. No, he told her. I'll stay awake, thanks. The crone shrugged and relaxed into her chair, but she delayed in giving Abby back, delayed just long enough that James felt the cobwebs tugging at his eyelids, and she delayed a little longer for each of that night's visits. The next night, when she delayed again, James gave in. Not intentionally, no, but the lure of sleep was powerful. He let his eyes close. Hours later, a muscle in his leg spasmed, and he woke suddenly, sitting up before he even knew where he was. Where was Abby? Where was the woman? Just where he'd left them, cuddled together in the rocker. The crone inclined her gaze toward Abby as if to say, not to worry, look, still sleeping. And so she was, out like a light, as peaceful as could be. That was the morning that Molly asked James, not thinking much of it, why he kept opening the attic door every night. The attic door, James said, confused. Which one? The one in our room, Molly answered. I've been shutting it when I get up every morning for the past week. You hadn't noticed? He hadn't. The attic door was on Molly's side of the bed, and James rarely walked that way. He decided to check it out immediately. He marched back upstairs and tugged the door open. The attic wrapped away to the left, and James had to stoop under the slope of the roof to enter. The original builders hadn't bothered to install a light fixture, so what little light there was came from a small window, perhaps a foot high and half as wide, made of thick mottled glass. On every surface except the floor, strips of insulation ran between the joists, held in place by great swaths of chicken wire. It made the attic look like a cut-rate prison, dangerous and cheap. As his eyes adjusted, he picked out shapes. Old luggage, abandoned piles of empty boxes, a broken sewing machine, a crinoline dress. To check further would have meant going around the bend to the left and getting filthy dirty in a crawl space, and worse, it would have meant acknowledging that something might be truly wrong. He could not afford that admission, so he backed out of the attic and shut the door as tightly as latch and jam would allow. Must be a change of pressure, he told Molly. The heat comes on, the house is cold, boards shrink and expand, who knows. I'll call someone, have them take a look. But he didn't. With only six shopping days until Christmas, he had enough on his mind, and Molly, 
nauseous from the latest in her string of prescription painkillers, elected not to push him. Without a second thought, James went back to the routine of handing his precious, fragile little girl to the inexplicable old woman in the rocker. Two nights later, he woke with a start. He was horribly and instantly aware that he was alone in the living room. The rocking chair, doubly empty, swayed back and forth once, twice, then shuddered to a stop. There was a single heartbeat of frozen time, and then he was on his feet and racing for the stairs, yelling for Abby as he ran. He caught sight of the crone as she shoved her way past the bedroom door, and he heard the attic door creak on its hinges. That brought Abby's first cry, a keening shriek like a rabbit pinned by a hawk. James leaped up the final stairs just as Molly pushed back the bedclothes, dizzy and disoriented, mumbling James's name. He ignored her and threw himself at the closing attic door. He got his arm through, and the thing inside slammed the door on his shoulder. James yelped at Abby's screaming rose to a desperate pitch. The thing on the other side released its grip, and James flung the door wide. He ducked into the darkness, then stood too fast and hit his head on a joist. The wire scraped across his forehead, peeling skin. He heard scuffling ahead, together with Abby's continued screaming, but the sounds were moving away from him deeper into the attic. James blundered into boxes and toppled over the sewing machine, but he barreled through, certain he was close, and the thing in front of him let out a furious, rasping hiss. Just as he reached the turn, Molly got the bedroom light on, and James's shadow capered up the attic walls. He saw the rocker thing, just her foot, vanishing into the tunnel of the crawl space. He dove forward and caught her ankle one-handed. The crone pulled against him, struggling. Again he heard the malignant hiss. He yanked as hard as he could and felt the creature slide back across the floorboards. But just when he thought he had her, the crone kicked out with her free foot and caught James hard on the nose. Stunned, blood gushing, he let go. He didn't mean to, but he did. And in that instant, the thing from the rocker gathered her strength and scuttled out of reach into the crawl space. Molly appeared in the doorway behind him, a flashlight in hand. Here, she said, and tossed it to James. He missed the catch, and the flashlight fell to the floor, its yellow beam aiming at a puddle of smeared blood. His? He could only hope. He scooped up the flashlight and threw himself into the crawl space, wriggling on his elbows like a caver. The next segment of Attic was a dead end, and James fully expected he'd have the crone cornered, but when he squirmed out of the crawl space, the attic was empty. There was no one there. He assumed his eyes were playing tricks on him. They had to be, because he could still hear Abby crying. He could hear her even over Molly's yelling, her demands to know what was happening, where was Abby, what was going on. And then, as James tried to pinpoint Abby's location, her howling protests began to fade receding into the distance. She grew farther away with every passing second. 
His hands began to shake. The muscles in his legs fluttered. He tried to shout for Abby, but his voice was stuck, caught somewhere between panic and disbelief. He beamed the flashlight into every last corner, every nook. He checked the tiny window, but it was sealed, shut tight. He checked behind a gap in the chicken wire where a wad of insulation flopped downwards, worm-like, but again nothing. He dropped the flashlight and beat at the wire-entombed walls, trying to push through bodily, but he only succeeded in bloodying his hands, and the insulation behind swallowed Abby's sobbing until she had vanished completely, and James, hyperventilating, collapsed to the floorboards. When Molly finally pushed herself through the dusty crawl space, she found James sitting alone in the middle of the empty attic floor, legs splayed, the flashlight abandoned and aiming into space. Blood dripped gently from his nose, and across his forehead was a vaguely foot-shaped smear of grey-white grit, as if he'd been kicked by a slab of ancient plasterboard. "'I'm sorry,' he said, and his voice cracked. "'I thought maybe I was doing the right thing.' They called the police, of course, and soon grim-faced officers were combing the house from top to bottom, using dogs and pry bars and every possible variety of cutting tool. At James's insistence, they did horrible damage to the attic, but after a few hours of finding absolutely nothing, they grew surly and gave up. Detectives herded Molly and James into separate rooms. They badgered Molly and told James that his tale of an intruder and an old woman at that, wearing slippers, was purest fantasy. They assured him they'd be back to figure out what he'd really done with his little girl and where he'd left the body. The next day was a sluggish blur of interviews, arguments, and recriminations. By nightfall, James and Molly were out of tears and far too exhausted to fight. They lay on their backs in bed and listened as a vast, ineluctable void rose between them, swelling by the moment. And then at the exact hour that Abby would normally have woken for the first time, they both heard the faint, barely audible wail of a frightened infant, muffled and distant, as if trapped by the walls of the house. Molly and James lay there, ears pricked, breath held, hoping that Abby would somehow cry herself to sleep and the sobs would taper away and stop. But Abby didn't stop, not until daybreak, and the next night the house repeated the performance. Molly resorted to singing lullabies in the nursery, for that, besides the attic, was where the sound was strongest. She crouched nightly by the nursery walls, her hands pressed flat above the flowers, the tips of her fingers pointing up to the room's blue and cloud-white heavens. James simply buried his head beneath every pillow he could lay his hands on, not that it helped. Abby's furtive cries drilled right through. They considered moving away, but how could they? Moving would mean abandoning Abby. 
so they chose to remain in their neat brick home in Fogel, Illinois. To this day their neighbors describe them as easy to like, but very hard to know, withdrawn, resigned. And isn't it a shame about the little girl who went missing? Such unhappiness, and so undeserved. Very few have ever been invited inside the house, or seen the beautiful empty nursery with its vivid tulips and canary daffodils, its scattering of fair weather clouds. Fewer still have seen the attic, where James and Molly spend hours each day in the dingy cobwebbed dead end. They lean there against the chicken wire and each other, listening for signs of their distant inconsolable daughter, and they pray that some day the house will have mercy and either set Abby free or, for the sake of family, swallow them in turn. That was Mark Rigney's surrogate, as read by Martin Rado. As a variegated working life, Martin has been a parent, a technical writer, and software developer, a teacher of creative writing, computer science, and business communication, symphony musician, and audiobook narrator. He has published short fiction and two collections of his poetry. Thank you, Martin. And that will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Join us again next week for our 200th episode of Tales to Terrify. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.